Welcome to The Picklist, the podcast for curious food industry minds. I'm Julia Glotz, a writer, editor, and consultant specializing in food and drink. Every week, I'm joined by an expert guest to discuss the news, trends, and developments shaping food and grocery retail right now. You'll get a personal perspective on how business leaders and leading thinkers from different parts of our industry are making sense of the big issues. My guests will also share what's on their personal reading list, bringing you a curated selection of thought-provoking articles from the trade press, national media, and other titles. You can find links to all the articles and suggestions for further reading in the episode show notes and also on thepicklist.co.uk. Now let's start the show. Hello and welcome to episode 71 of The Picklist. I hope you're having a good week. My guest this week is Anne Perkins, founder and managing director of Perkia. It's a really busy and exciting time for Perkia. They're just gearing up for a new campaign and new listings in the autumn. So Anne and I talk about the opportunities, but also the challenges for a healthy snacking brand in the current trading environment, from the cost of living crisis to HFSS and dealing with reformulation. Plus, we also talk about avoiding the pitfalls of greenwashing and how to use social media listening to inform the NPD process. Enjoy the show. Anne, welcome to The Picklist. Thank you for being my guest. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much for inviting me. I'm chuffed to be here today. We're recording this on Wednesday, the 6th of July, 2022. What have you been up to this week? What's on your plate? Yeah, so um, it's a busy week. We're building out our team at the moment. So I've been interviewing for new team members to join, um, particularly for sales this week. Sales, sort of bricks and mortar retail and also e-commerce. Um, we're working on a breakout marketing plan. So we did our first filming for um, advertising on social media before last week. The advertising that we've been doing has been around um, sort of animations and sort of digital assets sort of coming together to tell a certain story. And we did live filming last Friday, which was absolutely awesome. So we're getting into the editing on that. I'm working with a brilliant with brilliant partner, 10 Days London. Have to give a big shout out to those guys. Um, and then, yeah, we're launching with a couple of new customers in September. So starting to get our heads around the launch plan with those guys and seeing, yeah, seeing what we can do to make sure it's a huge success. Sounds super busy. When's your new campaign going live, do you think? Well, a week after next, I think, will be the plan. Yeah, so we're going to be finishing off the editing next week and then it'll be running through like social media and YouTube. So, yeah, we should be able to get it up and live pretty quickly. That's one of the things that probably makes us a little bit different is we're very agile and quick on things. If we've got a good idea, we just get on and implement it pretty quickly. And I'm really interested to hear that you're looking to expand the team. I was looking at your website earlier, just in preparation for our interview, and I thought one of the things that I found really interesting is you make a real point of saying, we're not a big corporate, we're a small independent team, there are currently six of us, and then you sort of introduce them and talk exactly about um, what, what they're doing. But you are clearly looking to, to grow the team now. What sort of size are we looking at, um, and, and what's driving that desire to now expand the team yeah so we're recruiting for four more people um and yeah I think it we raised some money last year um towards the end of last year we did a fundraise um on Cedars and that has given us like additional capital to accelerate our growth um we've we initially started the company um pretty bootstrapped so it was funded by myself and my partner Steve 
Um, and so, yeah, the extra investments allowed us to accelerate um, the growth of the company. And that means, yeah, we're able to expand the team. So, um, you know, we're growing really, really strongly in the marketplace, significantly ahead of the category, um, launching with new customers and um, in terms of retail, but also really strong growth in e-commerce. So we've just got, we're busier and busier and we need, yeah, some really exciting, cool people to join our, join our team and help drive that growth further. I'm really keen to talk to you about um, what your plans are for the brand and what we can expect um, in the second half of the year from you. But I want to first take a moment to talk a bit about how you ended up founding the brand in the first place, because you were at a point where you were experiencing quite a lot of frustration with the snacking options that you saw available in the market because you have some dietary restrictions, some pretty substantial dietary restrictions that you, you have to work around. Tell me a bit about that. What was the situation you found yourself in? What did you find was lacking in the market? Yeah, so um, I had various sort of, I guess, health issues over the years. Um, and then eventually I was diagnosed with celiac disease, which means I can't eat gluten. Um, so it manifested itself in sort of poor energy, could affect your mood, you know, digestive issues. Um, and then, yeah, as soon as I went gluten free, I just felt like myself on a good day every day. I just had so much energy. I was like bounding around and I just felt so positive and just so, so, so just generally fit and healthy. And um, as soon as I started shopping the free from aisle, I just felt like a bit of a second class citizen, really. I mean, things have moved on massively since then. But being a foodie, I felt like my world has sort of like shrunk and I didn't really feel comfortable with that. Um, so shrunk in choices, but I think also shrunk in terms of the engagement from the brands that I was able to like try. I just found them quite dry and not very creative and engaging and fun. Um, and I also felt that there was, um, I mean, as many people in free form would say, you know, lack of really good quality taste, quality products, so taste, texture, just overall enjoyment of, a, of the food. And pricing was quite expensive and they weren't particularly sustainable. And they really weren't very healthy. So I think often when people develop free from products, they automatically pump in a lot of refined sugars and um, and refined carbs and things like that. And I've never been keen on on sort of unhealthy food, refined foods um, in that way. Um, so yeah, so I just felt like there was lots of opportunities. Um, so yeah, so yeah, so we started obviously cooking differently and eating differently. And whilst my partner isn't free, doesn't need to be free from anything, just naturally in the house, we ate more like obviously had gluten-free dishes and I was also dairy-free. So made sure we had everything dairy-free and then we started experimenting with different snacks and just making my own rather than buying them and then trying them out with friends and family and they went down really well. And then eventually I sort of thought, well, I could potentially make a business out of this. We'll see what we can do. So we took a bold move, quit our jobs and yeah, set up Perkia. And initially it started making products in our home and shipping them into Whole Foods and Planet Organic in London. And then we caught the eye of some of the supermarkets and ended up launching in like Morrison's, we're in Sainsbury's, we're in Asda. So yeah, various different retailers picked us up. So yeah, it's been an interesting journey. What were you doing before you joined, uh, before you launched the brand? So, yes, yeah, so I worked at Heinz. I was head of, uh, sort of consumer insight and central marketing. So I got involved in, well, ran really all, all the innovation processes there. So from product improvement, um, like sugar salt reduction projects to brand new innovations that might be work, working on like kind of, you know, uh, different types of formats of different products in the, in the various categories that they had. 
Um, so yeah, and then a lot of marketing. So um, I worked on the It Has To Be Heinz campaign to really sort of propel Heinz out of a very difficult time in the recession when consumers were considering like what to buy in like 2008, 2009 and thinking about switching to private label and really just shoring up the business to make sure that people consumers had a reason, a really like emotive reason to stay with the brand and, and not to take the cheaper option. So yeah, so I had some fantastic experience in, in Heinz and I was seconded, I was there for about 10 years. So I was seconded into other roles at times as well. So I, I worked on um, like growth and cost out initiatives across various functions. Um, so I got to know a lot of people around the business and uh, got a good eye on different functions. So yeah, it's great experience. And that must make it so much easier, mustn't it? Making, taking that step and actually taking the risk of launching your own brand because you had that understanding of FMCG, you had that understanding of, of the shop already. But I guess a big corporate like Heinz and then having a, a you know small startup, was, was that a bit of a culture shock coming from the corporate world and going into that sort of entrepreneurial world? Yeah, I think it's it's probably harder if you join a startup from a corporate world rather than if you carve one out yourself, I think. Because when you carve one out yourself, you sort of you're so full of passion and excitement and energy for it. You sort of bounce out of bed every day going, Oh God, I can't, you know, wait to take on the world. Um, and you know that everything sort of sits with you. You know, when it see when we started, it was just myself and Steve literally working, you know, working at home. And then working in the kitchen and producing food ourselves and then, you know, shipping it out with FedEx. So we were very, um, you know, self-driven and self-empowered and self-reliant, I guess. Um, so, yeah, I think we we got used to it very quickly. I don't think because I don't it's not like you, you don't miss the other functions because they just aren't there. So there's no conversation about oh, wouldn't it be we never had a conversation about oh, wouldn't it be great if we had you know, I don't know, a different department to go and ask about because we sort of already sort of faced into the fact that that wasn't a possibility. Although, you know, we do definitely believe in like networking and talking to people. And one of my biggest tips for entrepreneurs is build out your network and ask for help and ask for advice and don't be afraid to because so many people want to help a startup. It's like the ultimate um, sort of joy, I think, of being asked, like, what, what do you think I should do? Like, lots of people like to be asked advice, or, uh, ask their opinion on things. And so many people are happy to, to give a helping hand and do sort of uh, mates rates or sort of some favours to, to, to give a, a helping hand to a small company. So, yeah, so we really, yeah, we really, I mean, there's always been ups and downs. I want to say everything's like all rose tinted because, you know, there's always highs and lows and you feel the bumps really differently than you do in a, in a corporate um, but we really we've we've loved the experience of carving it all out ourselves and yeah just working out what to do next and but being able to pivot if something's not quite working as we thought it might for whatever reason. What's it like being a challenger brand at the moment? What are the conversations like with retailers? Obviously, lots of difficult conversations happening generally. I'm sure your former colleagues at Kraft Heinz would uh, be able to tell a tale or two of that, given what's currently in the news. But yeah. how have you, how have you found it, and what impact from the cost of living crisis, but also some of the supply chain issues around Ukraine, have you felt personally with your brand? Yeah, I think that you know, there's definitely been challenges on labour force, you know, into the factory and getting like full orders out on time has been more challenging recently than it ever has been. Um, so you know, we're, we've been more hand to mouth, I guess 
in sort of the last 12 months in terms of getting stocks than we ever have been before. Um, but in terms of relationships with customers, I think the key thing is just keeping them fully informed of, of any issues that you may have and managing it effectively. So, you know, if you know that you're going to be a little bit low on stocks in a certain period of time, you know, change up your pro promotional period ahead of time. Don't go into promotion and then start shorting a customer. I mean, that's just like a terrible thing to do. So I think I think I think the good thing about the current environment is that everybody in a way is in the same boat. So it's not like you're having a conversation with a retailer about things being a bit, you know, tricky and them saying, oh, but nobody else is suffering in this way. So I think in a way that sort of helps that some of those conversations, but I think we're really lucky that we've got partners that value having a independent company and a founder driven company as one of their suppliers. So I think, um, you know, there's a, we, relationships are really strong and really positive. And, um, and I know the new customers that we're bringing on board in September are really excited about launching with us. And I think it's just about, you know, as a startup, just playing to your strengths and being clear with your customers about, you know, the things that you can do that are, that are you know, agile in terms of, say, innovation or helping on added value projects in a way maybe that a corporate can't, um, but not trying to go up against a corporate on things that you maybe can't win on because, you know, you can't do everything. That are called, you know, we're a different different type of organisation, so we haven't got pots and pots of cash around us, basically. <laughs> and and labour challenges aside, uh, what are the big pinch points for you at the moment in terms of inflation, in terms of cost price increases, and and sort of ingredient availability? Is there anything that's sort of a particularly big headache at the moment? We're managing it really well with our supply partner, um, I think would be the thing in its cost increases going across the board. I mean, it's just been a, a complete um, whirlwind, really, of cost price increases from, you know, all the things that people will talk about, you know, whether it's packaging shortages and uh, cost price increases on things like board and film and cost price increases on pretty much every ingredient on transport. Um, and on labor rates as well and energy. So it is, you know, there's a lot of headwinds coming. What we're trying to do is carve out as many efficiencies as we possibly can um, to try and offset those, those cost headwinds as well as we can. And then seeing where we net out um, after we've taken every step we possibly can. Um, but it's, yeah, it's definitely the most challenging economic time. Um, we haven't had any shortages. I know you mentioned the Ukraine mm. crisis. We've, we do use, um, sunflower oil and there's a good discussion around whether we should flip into a different oil and we have had a look at other um, not palm oil because we're very anti-palm oil and um, but we've looked at rapeseed oil but we, and we also managed to secure sunflower oil actually from another source so outside of Ukraine I think it's coming in from um, Canada and um, so there are other sources of of sunflower oil that we're able to secure so um, yeah we're sort of trying to get ahead of things as quickly as possible um, you know, if, if something looks like it's going to be an issue, we try and get a solution to it really quickly before it becomes a, cri you know, crisis. And you're also in a category that, um, you know, is, is affected by, by HFSS. Talk to me a little bit about how you have experienced the debate around HFSS. Uh, obviously, we've had some delays on, on aspects of, of those restrictions coming in as well. Um, what opportunities do you see from October for your brand? Yeah, so we have redeveloped one of our ranges, our energy bars, to be HFSS 
ready, I guess is one way to put it, but yeah, or non-HFSS. Um, so they can and will be carving out opportunities in store to be able to be on display, for example, which if they weren't, if they were just high fat, salt and sugar, you know, they wouldn't be on display. They wouldn't be able to be at front of store. So we are finding that there's upsides um, from a commercial perspective, you know, being able to, to step into spaces which maybe we wouldn't have got into before, but, you know, other lines in confectionery or maybe healthy snacks that, that aren't compliant um, with the new legislation wouldn't be able to do. So, yeah, it is definitely it is definitely bringing us some opportunities. How hard was it to reformulate that line? Um, were you already pretty close to that, that score yeah. of below four? Or did you have to do quite a lot of work on the recipe? We were probably around about a six, um, mm. five or six on the on the range. So it didn't take a lot of tweaking. But we, we tried to challenge ourselves because there's two different ways that you can get to the compliance level, either 80% um, sort of fruit and veg or through the different point system that you can use. So we thought probably one route might be more fruitful than another, but we tried both and we really tried to challenge ourselves to make sure that, you know, our goal was to make the product as the same enjoyment or better than, ideally better than it currently was. So rather than, you know, going into it thinking, oh, there might be a bit of a compromise, it was like, well, we're not gonna, if there's any compromise on enjoyment for the consumer, then we wouldn't go ahead with that. Um, so yeah, it's been really interesting. And I think sometimes from a product development point of view, it's actually really helpful to have some sort of restrictions or certain criteria to force yourself to think about constructing a recipe in a different way. Um, so yeah, we've really sort of enjoyed the process. Um, we enjoyed the process here um, to do that. And I think probably one of the recipes we thought was gonna be a bit easier to do has been more challenging. And we've only just sort of like, pretty much got it over the line in the last few weeks. What was it about that recipe that made it particularly challenging? Is there anything, any sort of particular technical challenge that you ran into? Yeah, it's got a lot of nuts in it, a lot of peanuts. And um, so it was quite high on the saturated fats. And that was the issue that we needed to try and balance out. But it's a, it's a very nutty bar. So it needs to have that nuttiness. Otherwise, it's not what it representing to the consumer. So yeah, it was trying to find a way to actually reduce and tweak some of the nut content, but without losing the nuttiness of the eat. I like what you said, though, about how it can be useful to have certain restrictions or, um, or sort of a strict framework that you have to work around because yeah. it sometimes does force you to be uh, to be more creative. Are you very hands-on still in the NPD process? Is that something that you personally drive where you try out different recipes? Yes, yeah. So it's myself, my partner Steve and Holly and the team. Um, and we discuss and debate like recipe changes that we make. And then really now Holly and Steve do it in the kitchen. They do it in our kitchen at home, our house. And uh, yeah, they've been in there today um, doing some tweaks. So yeah, so yeah, very hands on. Um, and um, yeah, really enjoy the process. But I think generally we found in, business, in the whole journey for Perkia that sometimes when something hasn't worked out and we've been forced to take a different route, it's actually ended up being a better solution. Mm -hmm. And we learned that very, very quickly. I remember, well, when we first launched, we uh, when we were first developing the product ideas, we wanted to get a big oven. We, were, we, we don't bake our bars, but we were trying some that did need baking. And so um, we were trying to hire an oven and then like right at the last very minute, the company that we were trying to hire the oven from just fell through and we were like, oh my God, you know, what are we gonna do? We haven't got anything to, to bake the products in. And we thought, and Steve was like, well, 
I'm going to go onto eBay and I'm going to see if I can buy a big oven on wheels that we can put into the corner of the kitchen. And I was like, okay, go on then. Let's see what you can find. And for about 700 quid, he bought this massive oven on wheels and we've still got it. So it's been in the kitchen for like about seven years, um, but it's still there. And actually we use it all the time. So I think, you know, sometimes it's a silly example really, but sometimes I think you sort of, you think, oh God, you know, you must be, first start on the journey so, oh when I was the end of the world because such and such didn't happen and then you realize actually no but there must be some other paths so let's you know let's see what else we can do and with that in the back of our mind that little that little voice saying actually maybe there's going to be something better that comes out of it fantastic now I think this is a good point for us to start talking about your first article um the first one you picked is from STV news and the headline is last chance to give views on controversial menu calorie count plans this is reporting on a consultation on the Scottish government's plans to introduce mandatory calorie labeling on food service menus of course we already have such labeling now in England came into force in April but there have been concerns in Scotland but also here um, about the impact of such labelling on people with eating disorders um, and the article quotes a psychiatrist who says that being confronted with calorie information every time you go to a restaurant every time you go to uh, a pub potentially could be triggering to people with eating disorders particularly mm. young people and children and the article also says that you know there continues to be quite a lot of debate around whether adding to calories to menus even helps tackle obesity in any case, which is obviously the overarching goal here uh, for for this initiative. And what was it about this article that sparked your interest? Why did you pick it? Yeah, I picked it because I feel like we're going backwards in terms of looking at calories as a measure of health and um, tackling the obesity crisis. Um, you know, we have a very strong view that, you know, all calories are not equal and that we focus on really nutritious calories. Um, and so I think reinforcing when you go out to restaurants that what you should really be doing to be healthy is counting how many calories you eat is fundamentally the wrong strategy um, and absolutely have a lot of empathy for anyone that is living with or recovering from an eating disorder. I mean, we often have consumers getting in touch with us, particularly younger girls um, who are in recovery and something like a perkier bar that's really nutritious, but is portion controlled and not too overwhelming can be one of the first things that they eat and they know that they're doing themselves some good and it starts to kickstart them getting back into um, like a healthier relationship with food. So I think for those two reasons, yeah, I thought it was a really interesting article and I thought it'd be really, it'd be really interesting to see where have Scotland come out on this, whether they come out the same as the UK or, or differently. I suppose one of the challenges that we're sort of facing from a public health perspective is there's mm. always that cha challenge, isn't there, that you say, well, maybe this is flawed in some ways, mm. but at least it's something that's relatively contained and actionable. Putting calories on menus feels like something that can be done. And I think that's sometimes why it's so appealing to governments in particular. You don't need to engage people in a complicated debate about how we define health and how they are meant to spot foods that are nutritious and, and good for them. Um, you can just put this number on there and, and be done with it essentially. But given that we do need to engage people on healthy eating, that we do, you know, 
need to try and encourage people to make mindful choices uh, around eating. What do you think would be a good alternative approach if we don't want to use calories? Yeah, I think that we've we've never come across a model that we think is flawless for sure. You know, HFSS has its limitations. You know, there's all sorts of other models used on the continent, which yeah, I think have limitations as well. But I think the areas that we would be really passionate to communicate to consumers is a sense of how wholesome the food is. So how much fiber it has in it is really important. Um, and how much protein as well, because the combination of fiber and protein can help you feel fuller for longer. And it's that sort of spike in blood sugar that you get from refined carbs and refined, you know, ultra processed foods that really has led us to this obesity epidemic. And I think we really need to go back to the root cause of why, why people are struggling with obesity and try and help educate them into mindful choices which isn't just on calories, but some sort of signposting that probably showed us an indication of fiber, um, protein, maybe some vitamins, um, maybe gave some idea of the processing nature, like the refined nature, whether it's whole foods or, or whether it's more refined foods, I think would be really useful. Um, ultimately, I don't think we're gonna solve the obesity epidemic without educating the, the population right from kids in schools all the way through you know adults and also the medical profession I'd say as well unless we really like engage with the science and I don't think it has to be overly complicated to help people understand what's good for them and what's actually not adding a lot of nu nutritious value to their to their diet. Of course it's also important to I guess consider to what extent people can afford those healthier choices as well, especially as we're in a in a cost of living crisis. The FSA recently put out um, a, a report on how the cost of living crisis is impacting people's food choices, and it really made for terrifying reading, uh, with people you know just reporting how worried they are about some of the compromises they feel they are now having to make in terms of health and nutrition, also things like uh, sustainability because prices are going up. What are you picking up from your customers, from, your, from the consumers who buy your products about what they are focused on in terms of health? What do they care about? And are they worried about being able to afford healthy foods in the current climate? I think that there's different choices that you can make and still say stay quite healthy. So I wouldn't want to try and like talk for, you know, obviously all our sort of consumer base, but I think there's a good level of knowledge within a lot of our customers that yes, you might not be able to afford to buy avocados, but you could probably pick up a can of pulses or mixed beans and add that to some food that you're cooking at home or make it, add it to a salad add it to a bolognese, you know, add it to something like that. And that actually is going to be a really good source of fiber and protein and is going to keep you feeling fuller for longer. And you might be able to pick it up for 55p, you know, in a major supermarket, it can go a long way. So um, I think, yes, it, I think, you know, our, our core consumer base is pretty well educated on health and pretty committed to health. So I can't, you know, they, there will be choices to be made, but I think it will be more around, well, what's better, what's the more cost-effective way for me to still have health as a primary driver of, you know, the, the, the food that I put on the table for myself and for my family? Um, how can I do it in a more cost-effective way? Um, and I, yeah, I think those sort of like, maybe some of those canned foods can be a really, really good solution 
um, versus more treaty um, fresh foods that may be, you know, going up in price a lot and just generally may have been very expensive to start with. And thinking about some of the compromises that people f- might feel they have to make in terms of what they can afford and, and the kind of nutrition that they'd ideally like to get from their foods. Are you worried that if the cost of living crisis gets worse, that people will sort of churn out of healthier snacks like the one that you have? Or what, what's your expectation in terms of how consumers are going to respond to those pressures? Yeah, well, actually, you reminded me of something, yeah, we worked on at Heinz, which was there was always a correlation between recession and eating oven chips. And so recessions were often quite good news at Heinz because people would have more ketchup with their oven chips. So definitely comfort foods become a lot more popular when you're in a recessionary time and when when your wallet's being pinched. Um, And it's been massively squeezed, not just pinched as of this year. I mean, it's it's really terrible impact on, on so many people. Um, I th- so far the category is pretty robust in terms of healthy snacking it's still growing at an annual rate of about seven and a half percent I think the highest it got to is about 10 percent earlier on in the year so it's still in strong growth um, I think amongst those choices of healthier snacks there'll be some uh, moves to eat you know buying in bigger packs buying in bulk um, you know maybe, maybe buying on e-commerce as well to get bulk packs maybe waiting out for better offers to come up you know I mean for example prime days coming up soon on Amazon and I expect that that will be really really storming time when people are really looking for those killer deals um, so I think there will be an element of like what's the smart choice that I can do maybe I'll, I'll you know buy, buy more on promotion and, and stock up if they've got the cash available to do that um, but I think as well for those people that are a bit more savvy on their health, they'll really want to make sure that the health choices they're making are really, really, truly good for them. And I know we might touch on greenwashing later, but I have a bit of a thing about health washing as well, which isn't a term yet, but as far as I'm aware. Um, you but, had you it know, here but, first. <laughs> yeah, but, but brands pretending to be healthy and putting themselves forward as being like a, a better solution than a bar of chocolate or confectionery. But actually, when you look at the back of pack, it's really not that good for you. So I think that there will be, you know, some consumers out there will think, well, actually, I really want to make sure that I have the, the real McCoy and not, not switch into something that's a sort of a cheap alternative, but isn't really doing the job that I want it to do. Now you've already talk, touched on uh, greenwashing, so I'm going to bring us on to the next article because that's exactly um, what the next article that you picked is all about. This is a piece from Business News Daily, and the headline is, What is Greenwashing? Um, it's basically a bit of an explainer article on the concept of greenwashing, but crucially, it provides uh, some useful tips, tricks, and advice to businesses on how to make sure any environmental claims they make are robust and how to avoid greenwashing. Um, It's quite a useful list of different things to potentially look out for in there. Um, A couple of things that that are sort of listed there include fluffy language, so terms such as eco-friendly or natural that don't have a clear definition, um, and also using evocative images of nature to give an unjustified green impression. Um, The other one I thought was quite interesting was imaginary friends, which is made-up labels that are designed to look like third-party endorsements, but essentially are just the product of marketing departments and look pretty on, on packaging. And I have a good idea as to why you picked this article, but tell me, what was it about it that caught your attention? 
Yeah, I thought it was great. I thought it was a really good educational piece that tells the sort of story and the challenges that you have trying to, to communicate the good things that you do in a, in a sustainable business, but making sure you don't push it too far. And also sort of watch outs for companies that I guess marketing departments that get really excited about the fact that, you know, 80% of 88% of people want to say they want to live sustainably. So you want to sort of make a big noise about things, but you can be misleading. And actually now it's not just not the thing to do. The Competition Markets Authority has, um, you know, put in place legislation so you can be banned from, you know, communicating things that are deemed to be greenwashing. Um, advertising can be cut, you know, packaging might need to be changed if you're seen to be misleading. Consumers. And we have seen some of those cases come through already. I think there have been yeah. quite a few examples recently in, in food and drink um, of, of yeah. brands that have and retailers that have got themselves into trouble over this. Yes, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I th I think as a company that is very sustainably minded and the way that we do business every day is part of our core is one of our absolute core values. Um, I still I still find these articles really interesting to to uh, to learn from. I think that's you know there's still little things that I can I can learn from, um, when I read read articles like this. Um, and it also just you know reinforces some of the things that we're doing well. So you know, one of the recommendations is to you know have third party endorsements and one uh, and make them you know make sure they are credible. So for example, we work with Climate Partner um, to measure our carbon footprint and then to offset our carbon against some really great initiatives all around the world. You know we're very keen on working with credible third parties. Um, we're also endorsed by the or certified by the um, Vegan Society um, and we work with food banks like Fair Share for any spare, spare food that we have. I'm super interested in what you're saying there about offsetting because I guess this is partly where the controversy around greenwashing already comes in because there are definitely people, um, as you will know, in the sustainability world who would say, actually, I have a problem with offsetting um, you know, offsetting itself is is really coming under attack as well. I think there are articles that provide similar greenwashing guidance. Um, I think I remember one that appeared on the BBC that said, oh, be very careful with any brand or any company that claims to do offsetting because it's often a sign of greenwashing. How do you feel about that? And how do you um, make sure that Actually, people don't start saying, you know what, I don't think you can be credible as a sustainable brand if you do offsetting. Mm, yeah, well, I, I very much welcome that sort of feedback. I think it's really important that we understand the breadth of consumer views and we take that on board and see what we can do to adapt our company to, to meet, meet lots of people's needs. I think where we sort of look to a partner like a climate partner is to give us some really sound advice on what we should and shouldn't do um, and one of the things that we work with them on is minimizing the amount of carbon that we have to start with so is there any carbon that we can already take out of our supply chain um, you know one key area of um, carbon um, uh, creation can be through uh, having non-plant-based foods, for example. So actually, when they looked at our footprint, they were very encouraging and very supportive that we'd actually taken a lot of steps already, making sure that our packaging was fully recyclable, making sure that our food was plant-based, um, making sure that in terms of how we pack it and transport it, it's it, there's no waste, you know, things really tightly packed and small, small, uh, small packages and transported in the most... Um, 
carbon friendly sort of way. Um, but yeah, absolutely. One of the key things we need to do is just to look to see how how much more carbon we can we can take out of our supply chain. Um, but one of the things I did ask them about at the beginning of the process was, should we consider being carbon negative? Mm. Um, and they were very clear that they didn't think that was a good idea because they thought that could lead to overconsumption that oh, in a way that consumers could think oh well it's carbon negative well I can have twice as much mm-hmm. they didn't think that you know consumption at that level was a good thing to encourage so I very much took that on board and we said right well we won't we won't do that we'll definitely just go to the carbon neutral and then see everything you know take everything out, out that we possibly can that's really interesting um mm-hmm. and I guess there's also just a question around how much consumers really understand some of that terminology um, you know, carbon neutral, carbon negative, how, you know, to what extent do people actually understand what, what that is supposed to mean? Uh, what's your sense of how engaged consumers are around things like carbon claims, for example? Mm. Do they understand it? Is it something they look for? I think they're very interested in it, for sure. But I think a lot of people just want to know at a very top line level, you know, is it, is it better than the alternative? I think that's where we can help is to do a like for like comparison and give consumers the information on a level playing field about, you know, whether we're carbon neutral, maybe a competitor or another choice isn't isn't carbon neutral and, and let them make the decision based on, you know, factual information. Um, but I would say just in terms of the depth of understanding on carbon neutrality and carbon offset, it's yeah, I would say it's quite niche. So, for example, well, when we started the whole project, we didn't know that there were three different pillars to offsetting your carbon. We were really engaged with carbon removal in terms of planting trees, but we hadn't really thought about carbon reduction and carbon avoidance. And one of the reasons we invested in all three areas was so that we could use it as part of our communication to help you know, our consumers understand the, the different areas and the types of projects that could be we could invest in and for the team as well to understand here um, all the different initiatives that we could get involved in and how we could help. Now the final article we're going to talk about is one I picked. This is from The Grocer and the headline says why we should be using social media to inform NPD. This is an opinion article uh, which references healthy snacking quite a lot. And when I read it, I thought, oh, I definitely want to ask you about this because it, I think, makes some really interesting points about the NPD process and how social media listening can potentially inform the NPD process. And what it says is that brands, you know, traditionally would rely on things like focus groups to basically test and develop ideas for new products. Um, but actually, there are certain categories and snacks is one of them, that are very actively discussed on social media. People have lots of strong views on snacks. They like talking about snacks. Um, particularly people who have specific health concerns or dietary preferences will often you know, share tips and advice about which, which snacks might be suitable. So there's this rich source of potential data and information uh, to be mined there. Um, and the article is essentially saying, look, brands and retailers are not yet paying enough attention to this as a potential source of insight uh, on the NPD process. And of course, grocery NPD famously high failure rates. So there's every reason to try and find as much data and insight uh, as, as possible. 
Mm. I was super interested to talk to you about this, um, especially given your background, your understanding of, of sort of consumer insights and also the way you approach NPD at Perkia now. What did you make of this? Is this something that you could see yourself use? Yeah, I thank you so much for raising the article. I think it's an excellent article and I think it certainly has its place in an insights program for, I'd say innovation, but also ongoing listening and, he and hearing what you might even be able to do with products that you've already got available in the marketplace. You might be able to communicate some of the benefits they have in a different way or maybe change up some of the packaging and make it suitable for um for consumers in a different sort of occasion, because there were some really interesting comments around um, having sort of healthier snacks when people are planning parties or gatherings, um, which I thought was really interesting. And um, and the insight really around, yeah, like you say, special diet, I think the fact that, you know, when, when you have a, often if you have a special dietary need, you don't want to feel like you're the only one at the table that's having a special meal. You want to be able to enjoy what everyone else is doing. So, um, and not miss out. So I think there's a really rich territory to understand, well, what is it that those consumers particularly want in some of those different occasions? Um, so, yeah, I think it's, I think it's really interesting because it's, it's a quite a clean area of insight as well because obviously if you're setting up your own project you're already restricting the type of questions totally. that you want to ask and you're also setting up or be an environment where well you are setting up an environment where people know that what they say is going to be recorded on which has some you know has some positives in that they can consider the areas carefully maybe before they share their opinion and and take some some different sort of concepts or options or, or foods to try um, to feedback on, but I think this sort of almost, yeah, secret sort of listening into the unadulterated views of consumers is, is really exciting. How do you approach social media more generally at, at Perkia? Are you a brand that's very active on social? Are you embracing new platforms like TikTok, for example? Tell me a little bit about how you do social media. Yeah, so we are, yeah, we're very active on social. We're not active on TikTok at the moment, but we will be later in the year. I'm recruiting for a digital marketing um, manager to join the team. And that's going to be one of their um, really exciting projects is to, to launch us on TikTok and to, yeah, really sort of blow that area up. But yeah, we love, we love social because it's such a fantastic opportunity for us to tell our story, but also to, you know, engage and hear what our consumers think about what we're doing and um, what they're liking and do little polls and bits of research that we can do on like Insta story, for example, um, to engage and get feedback. So yeah, we absolutely love it. It's all, we do it all in-house and um, yeah, just uh, share, share, share things that we're up to and share different benefits of the products that we have available. And we're pretty much out of time, but before I let you go, um, I just want to return to your plans for the second mm. half of the year. What are you really looking forward to in the second half of the year, given that it's going to be a pretty tough trading environment? We really are ready to disrupt the, the healthy snacking market. You know, it's a busy category. There's lots of brands in that. There's lots of big corporates in that. It's all a bit dull, though. And we're really going to be ready to shake it all up. So, yeah, I'd watch this space for, for our creativity. And making Perkia famous, ultimately, is what we need. We get fantastic reviews. We get fantastic feedback. We have you know, 4.8 star reviews on Amazon, and they're all completely organic. Um, and we just get such fantastic feedback, but not that many people know who we are and what we do. And that's what we're going to change. 
And if people want to connect with you, find out more about what you're up to, or potentially take you up on that advice that you gave right at the start, which is to not to be afraid to ask other people for advice and tips if you are a uh, small brand starting out in this space, what is the best way to connect with you and get in touch? Yeah, so at Perky Foods is our handle for social media. And then on LinkedIn and Perkins, um, just send me a message and link in that way. That's a really good way to connect too. Super. And thank you so much for being my guest. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and found it useful. If you did, please consider giving The Picklist a five-star rating on whichever platform you're listening and leave a review. It tells me you're enjoying the show and would like it to continue, and it helps me reach more listeners. If you'd like to connect, you can find me on LinkedIn at juliaglotz.com and on thepicklist.co.uk. And if you'd like more thought-provoking reads for your personal reading list, please subscribe to The Trim, my free weekly newsletter at juliaglotz.com forward slash newsletter. See you next time.